Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. How you doing? I am still doing shitty. How are you? I'm doing worse today, I feel, than I have been earlier in the week. But it's Friday, even though Friday is a meaningless term now. Um, well. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to keep weekends still as weekends and not work, but still, it feels kind of meaningless. I'm going to not work so much over the weekend. My, the reason it feels like a weekend to me is I had a little bit of a panic that I my breathing is getting worse and that I would oh. need uh, an inhaler or might need to see someone and everything's closed. So I just spent the last half hour trying to get an inhaler called in so I can not freak out. Uh, that's not good. Do you have a primary care physician you can just give a ring to and ask what's going on or what they can I, do? Yeah, yeah, I did. They're, they're okay. calling me in and I mean, I have an albuterol inhaler mm-hmm. on file from mm-hmm. having mild asthma and that was enough of an excuse then to go ahead and do it. And they're Damn. actually getting me. First, they were going to be like, well, we don't know what we can do without seeing you. Like, do you really want to see me right now, guy? Let's do this. Like, I, I, I have all the symptoms of COVID or the flu, but I've tested negative for them. So that's yeah. where I am. Which is it's not like a good shit. place to be, especially if you're not breathing well. That's really scary. Yeah. The, the wheezing is way down deep in my lungs and it's Ooh. like when i when i cough it's not coming up that sounds so covety that's messed up yeah it's freaking me out that's not good i'm sorry well let's 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 be let's try to be crisp with this interview then yes. <laughs> and get through it so you can rest and i don't know i can go be sad about not being able to be with my family today um Right. So who are we bringing on the show today, Chris? We're talking to Amy Anderson from UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara, the home of the Chimani group. Michael Gervin's there and... um, Aaron Blackwell was there. Aaron Blackwell was there. Melanie Martin was there. Everybody Mm -hmm. that we know who worked with the Chimani probably gone through UCSB. So... I don't know Amy, but I'm guessing she's one of Gervin's doctoral students. Yeah, she's a grad student, and she was lead, or was, or I should say is, is lead author on the Editor's Choice paper for uh, the April, March-April issue of the American Journal of Human Biology. And uh, it's, got, it's got Carmen Hovey, who we've interviewed. It's got Aaron mm-hmm. Blackwell, who we just talked to yesterday. Um, and then it's got, uh, like I said, Michael Gervin, who I've never met, but I know his work. It precedes him. He's Chimani guy. We have and, invited him on the show. He's been slow to get back. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> Hilly Kaplan, I don't know, but is also always on all these papers. Yeah. Um, it's a who's who of the Chimani group, for sure. It, it's a, it is a who's who, you know, and, and it's one of those projects that, that, you know, is always lurking on the periphery, maybe not periphery, it's always front and center in all the research, Mm -hmm. a lot of research that's being done. And hopefully she can give us a little bit of background. Yeah. So the paper, where is it? Old friends and friendly fire, pregnancy, hookworm infection, and anemia among tropical horticulturists. I find it it interesting that they manage uh, in this paper to use the old friends term and never say hygiene hypothesis. Oh yeah. Interesting. Which is, I think is, is really what that's referring to this idea of, helminths and hookworms being Mm -hmm. endemic and triggering immune response and that's sort of what put the whole hygiene hypothesis i mean that was the that's what instigated is people who worked in amazonia who saw that there's no as there's no allergy or autoimmune disease Mm -hmm. down there and they've hypothesized that it's this constant triggering of the immune system due to this endemic um, problem yeah 
Oh, right? no, you, no, you're absolutely right. But it also reminds me of a story. I think I heard it on Radiolab several years ago of a guy who had like, I don't want to use the word crippling seasonal allergies, but like seasonal allergies that brought him to his knees and basically made him non-functional. Um, and that he traveled the world trying to contract hookworm and then has been going through this process of shedding his own hookworm isolating them and somehow sterilizing them I, I i don't know the process and then selling them to people so that they could cure their allergies the way oh yeah cured his allergies fecal transplant yeah but it wasn't apparently it was like hookworms it wasn't actually the feces he somehow clear don't know the process radiolab didn't get into the methodological details of how he harvested them <laughs> okay so in, in terms of stuff in terms of information that we do have so one of the things that this paper I mean, it's, it's, it's using a methodology that I'm not familiar with at all. So mm. ESR and eosinophils, I just don't even know what those are. And I know what eosinophils. So I know eosinophils really well, both for me and because of my cat. So eosinophils are the, uh, the type of white blood cell that go apeshit, basically, when you're having an allergic response. So if you have an increase in eosinophils in your blood, that means you are having a, some sort of allergic reaction to something. Um, and so my cat has seasonal allergies and, uh, every time we take him in, he'll, he gets like weird wounds in front of his ears and they like swab the wounds and they're just filled with eosinophils. Hmm. So that's how I know that. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Amy, welcome to the Sausage of Science and thank you so much for being on. So stoked to be here. <laughs> why, don't, why don't we start by you telling us where you are and like your... Give us context on you. What's your uh, what's your status? Where are you working, studying? Okay. Um, what is my status? I'm a fifth year PhD student, um, and I'm doing my degree at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, I advanced to candidacy in January. Congrats! So, thank you. <laughs> at the the beginning stages of the dissertation, where you have the plan written out and everything looks bright and exciting and it seems like it all makes sense and just before the part where uh, things start getting hard and and unraveling um and then so a pandemic hit <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're at uh in uh, you're doing your program in california but you said you're not on the coast right now so where are you sheltering in place i am sheltering in place in denver <laughs> ah okay all right so mountain time uh yeah how's that transition how is that going for you <laughs> right now? Yeah, I think I have been far luckier than most um, in that, you know, just advanced to candidacy, I'm not taking classes. Mm -hmm. And I'm so lucky I'm on a fellowship this year. So I'm basically on like the PhD student version of a sabbatical right now. Nice. <laughs> um, and I was gearing up to do lab work and sorting samples and stuff. But when lab work got shut down because of COVID, I sort of... Um, relocated to Denver because my partner lives in Denver and I would rather shelter in place with the person I love than um <laughs> that makes perfect sense when did you make the move to to Denver how deep into oh, this gosh. were we <laughs> how deep into this I think it was like the day before the shelter in place order came down for wow California. and I'd rather be here than sheltering in place with my five housemates in California who I love dearly but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> probably a smart call 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, just for the dynamic of those five housemates, once you are back together, I can't, <laughs> I, I don't see that going well <laughs> with the shelter in place. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think actually that, um, like, effectively moving has been really good for the whole like COVID upheaval because being in a completely different place makes the interruption of like normal routines mm. feel less eerie and unnerving. Hmm. Um, it's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's become our new intro question to our, <laughs> to our, to our, the people we bring on the show now, sadly. Uh, our typical intro question is, how did you get into anthropology? What's kind of your origin story and why you decided to pursue a PhD in it? Right. Okay. So origin stories are tough because I feel like you're sort of retrospectively like creating a narrative arc that didn't exist there in the first place. Um, so this was, I think, maybe the hardest question to think about when I, when I looked at the list. Um, but I guess I've had sort of a background morbid curiosity about um, dead languages and dead people since like second grade. Um, <laughs> and when I started at my undergrad institution, um, the first year that I was there, they started a major in archaeology. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't think about it too hard. I just just did it because it looked interesting. And, and where was that? Then I read... Hmm? Oh, that where? was uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I read in archaeology magazine that because of global warming, the permafrost was all melting, and so all the frozen mummies up in the tundra were, were going to be, you know, the, there was a ticking clock on getting that information, and so I was like, great, this is my niche, I can do this. Hmm. <laughs> um, and then it turned out that uh, getting into the frozen mummy game is kind of hard. Uh, <laughs> No one wants to let you near uh, frozen, frozen mummy game. Have a medical degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Those frozen mummies are dangerous. They have all kinds <laughs> of diseases. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best part. Um, and so I, I ended up uh, getting into bioarchaeology and doing an honors thesis in um, sort of uh, looking at uh, health and disease profiles of. Um, of a site from the North Carolina coast. So skeletal remains uh, ended up being my, being my bag. Who'd you work with? Who did I work with? With Dale Hutchinson. Mm. Fantastic, loved him. He was such a great, he is such a great mentor. Still, we're still, we're still buddies. And that was a grand old time. Um, mm. And then I took a couple of years off cause I was burned out and um, it was 2012 and I don't know, mini recession then as well. Um, so I, I actually worked as a field archaeologist for a year. And my plan was I will do archaeology for a year because that's what I've trained in. And then I will do anything but archaeology for a year. And then I'll see how I feel about things. Um, so I did archaeology for the first year and I did it in the southeast and um, a couple of academic um, digs overseas. I got to do my first uh, work in South America. I was on a site in Peru for a couple of months um, and that was all fantastic. And then um, I took a year where I, I don't know, I worked on a farm and I worked in an accounting uh, department and I was a moonlit as a cheesemonger for a while. <laughs> uh, did, a, did a bunch of other weird gigs and, uh, and then sat down and thought about grad school. And, um, 
I'm glad that I took the time off because uh, it didn't take me away from anthropology, but I did sort of have the time to realize that I'm not nearly as interested in the particularities of any time or place um, as I am in sort of the biological processes that mm. um, create human health and how um, the environment impacts that. Uh, and so ultimately that meant working with living people. And so that very much, you know, determined where, where I applied and who I ended up working with. Very cool. Um, no, that's a really good story. And I think it's, <laughs> no, I think it's good. And I, yeah. I totally understand how you could, it, it seems contrived because hindsight, you can, you can picture it one way that might make it better than the others. But no, I think that's a completely, we've heard some really like winding atypical stories when we ask that question. So <laughs> don't worry. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so where does uh, what you're doing now fit in that, that milieu? How did you find yourself to UCSB? And, and Right. Um, so I was looking at programs where I could work simultaneously with um, a bioarchaeologist and a human biologist. And UCSB was really um, the only school where the, the human biologist was interested in being my, my primary advisor. And uh, that was the direction that I was more interested in, in going where I felt like I had more ground to cover. Um, I felt like I could meet most of my own needs in the archaeology department, but I needed more guidance um, with with getting up to speed with all the all the soft tissue stuff. Yeah. So 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 get, um, we're talking about an article here, but it sounds like you're you're you have more breadth to you. So what what's your <laughs> what's your research uh, area? Broadly, it's health and the skeleton and disease ecology. So I know that this article has nothing to do with bones. <laughs> Except that it sort of does because everything that has anything to do with blood has something to do with bones because all the blood is made in the bones. And I really got into writing this paper because um, as preparation for my dissertation, which is also uh, with the Chimani, um, I, I wanted to sort of characterize anemia risk and subtypes of anemia in the population of, of different ages and get a sense of sort of the disease ecology of, of anemia in this population um, because the dissertation then turns back to the skeleton and the relationship between anemia and the skeleton in a, a living subsistence population. And so as I was looking at anemia in, in all its facets uh, in this population, we sort of stumbled on this interesting story um, and it became my, my master's paper. Well, I mean, you're, you're in a rich tradition, so it may not, uh, it may not be obvious in passing, but um, in knowing the, the field, it, you sound right in the the same. You're, you're treading the same water as George R. Melagos, um, <laughs> who's, who since passed, and his student Molly Zuckerman, who's written on hygiene hypothesis and bioarchaeology. Which I was just saying here, it's it's funny you call this um, old friends because we, mm -hmm. we now tend to refer to the this paradigm as hygiene hypothesis, which you guys have have not mentioned in here, but that's really this whole, that's the paradigm. It seems like you're, you're in and, and it's, uh, you're in good company. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I really love that whole integration of um, evolutionary approaches to, to human health and evolutionary mm -hmm. medicine. And yeah. Um, I mean, we're right in the midst of an emerging pandemic, emerging uh, uh, an epidemiological transition as it were. So <laughs> Your skill set is spot on. <laughs> wow. Well, great. 
good to feel marketable. To tell us how we <laughs> will survive this. Yeah. If, <laughs> I think if is the big one now. Uh, so let's dig into that paper a little bit. Uh, so we introduced it before we brought you on. And this was the editor's choice article for the recent AJHB issue, which is awesome. So congrats, by the way, for that. Thank you. Uh, and in the study, you looked at immune response and hemoglobin levels among over 600 Shimani women, which is a massive number of participants. Like, that's impressive. And so first, uh, why don't you tell us, we've had a couple of folks on before who've worked with the Chimani, but love to get your take about working with that population and if you've had any interesting fieldwork stories you might want to share. Okay, so um, <laughs> it is a massive uh, sample size, and the only reason I'm able to have it is because we have this big collaborative project that's been running for so many years, and uh, the data that I uh, used in that paper um, was collected over nine years by the mobile oh, wow. team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm super lucky to be to be part of such a such a massive um, project. Um, but I do have to come clean and say that I have not yet been down to Chimani land. Um, but the plans are theoretically in the works for me to go down later this summer if COVID allows, um, but definitely at some point in the next year. Um, so I don't have any field stories yet, but I should be getting some soon. <laughs> and I can check back in with you after. Hey, no, don't, don't, don't be like apologetic about it we, we <laughs> actually just we just talked to Aaron about this and and the the importance of reminding students that doing original field work is less important right now mm -hmm. especially right now than it ever was but there's tons and tons of great data sets out there that that are um, we're doing a disservice to the people who were subjected to our collection <laughs> protocols if we don't yeah. thoroughly make use of these and that that goes back years and that's an ongoing problem so now's a good time to remind us all that a good field story is mm -hmm. is, is really not as important as like doing good science yeah and as many people are now trying to pivot their work from field work to using existing data sets hearing these stories and normalizing it is super important so don't feel bad at all about this thank you um, yeah, it's a it's a delicate balance, you know, because um, with the with the Chimani project, it really is sort of the the sole point of of contact for for medical care for an entire population of mm. people that otherwise don't have a lot of access to um, to the medical systems in their country, and so there's that, you know, um, it can feel a little extractive, you know, the the fieldwork mm. scenario, but we do have sort of a I guess the project plays an important role for the community and so that's a theme that's also come up in a number of different interviews that we have done about finding good collaborative field work that benefits the community as much if not more than it does the researchers so you are highlighting things that we respect and and we really <laughs> enjoy hearing so don't worry about it but your sentiment is valid you know a lot of students feel really guilty about doing field work that they feel morally compromises the idea of do no harm and yet they know they need to do these things to be credible in the field so mm. uh, we need to talk that's why we do this podcast because mm -hmm. we want to talk about those things and sort of highlight like hey do we need to be sending students to the field all the time mm -hmm. is it because students want to go to the field to feel like a real anthropologist or because we re we somehow create this uh, this feeling that they 
that that results in them feeling like they need to. Yeah, and like I think you're it's not a, above. you're not a real anthropologist unless you go to the field. That kind of sentiment has been around for a really long time, and trying to break that down, it's been around for decades. So it's important we talk about it. Yeah, it's it's funny how uh, you can go from subfield to subfield trying to get your street cred, and whatever you built up in the last subfield just doesn't transfer mm. somehow. You know, so like you're not a real archaeologist unless you have, you know, done X number of hours digging holes. And mm -hmm. then um, once you're doing, you know, human biology work, all of your field work in archaeology doesn't count as field work, street cred. Um, and, you know, <laughs> in That's the end. demoralizing. That's a tough thing. And, and so, yeah, exactly what Chris said is, you know, breaking that down with as many of these interviews as we can to like, it's just as excellent and valid as work and guilt has no place in, in, in our field for that. I'm drawing a blank on the person. Um, I really should have, have, uh, shouldn't tell stories if I don't know the punchline, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> in some of the research that I've been doing recently, it was a Boaz student and I'm, I'm blanking on him, but did this whole dissertation in libraries, right? Did a dissertation analyzing, the paleo Indian, blah, blah, blah. Some, some US, some Native American group from North America and, had, and, and was a, an active professor and it's still not done anything outside of the libraries. That person decided they needed to do some field work. So this is not a new issue that we're struggling with. This is like part and parcel of the history of the discipline. Boaz himself was <laughs> saying, go to the library to do your dissertation. <laughs> there we go. Make anthropology make anthropology Boazian again. Maybe. Is that what we're oh gonna do? God. Make cats? I don't know. <laughs> right, let's get back to your paper, Amy. Uh, so you're interested in women and hookworm infection and particularly looking at what happens during pregnancy. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I guess the, the first question is why might pregnancy increase susceptibility to hookworm and other comorbidities or other issues? Uh, and to preface this, we, we do have folks who listen to this show who are not anthropologists and have no background in these kinds of things. Uh, so we'd like to make sure we ask these questions to kind of give a little bit of background of what's going on. Okay. Um, so, uh, so why might pregnancy increase susceptibility to hookworm? All right. So, um, Pregnancy is this really dynamic time with a lot of physiological changes, you know, growing a whole other life form inside you. Um, but these changes are particularly pronounced, I think, for the immune system. So one of the like, crazy amazing things about placental mammals is that um, during pregnancy, the mom's body has to recognize the cells of her fetus as being not her and also avoid mounting an immune response to all of the non-self cells that are inside of her when like the whole point of the immune system is that it's built to recognize and destroy non-self cells. Um, so that phenomenon is sort of referred to as, as fetal tolerance and it's really crucial for you know getting through a successful <laughs> pregnancy. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, when it comes to hookworm, um, we know that some of the systemic shifts um, that characterize, you know, cellular immunity in a successful pregnancy are similar to the immune shifts that you see in, in chronic hookworm infections or in chronic worm infections generally. And so during those chronic infections, um, what you're seeing in that um, immunological profile is sort of striking a balance between immune tolerance 
to the worm in an environment in which a cleared worm infection is never really cleared for long before reinfection. Um, and balancing that against an immune response to, you know, an unwanted parasite and wanting to clear that infection. Um, and so because of the, uh, that shift in immune profile that sort of matches up between worm tolerance and fetal tolerance, the, the barrier for entry might be lower for a hmm. uh, in a pregnant host. Um, and then on the other side, the cost of mounting a cellular immune response to hookworm, you know, the cost benefit might look a little different in a pregnant host if, um, if that response has negative consequences for the pregnancy. Mm. Um, and eosinophils, which are the white blood cells that are primarily involved in fighting worm infections, um, also appear to be um, part of the inflammatory cascade that precedes the onset of labor. Hmm. So, um, that's what <laughs> I'm sorry, back that train up. How do you, I mean, do you know anything about that? Or is this something that's still like really understudied? Like what does have to do with labor? That seems crazy to me. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it gets a little complicated. It's, um, major basic protein is one of the, the main protein products of, from eosinophils. It's quite, uh, inflammatory. Um, but it looks as though actually it's, um, it's less about the eosinophils themselves and more about that protein product and, mm -hmm. um, the fetus, um, it's the, the placenta that is producing, um, more of that pro protein product right before labor. Um, and so there seems to be sort of a, the, the reactivity of the eosinophils gets tamped down and that sort of gets, um, turned over to the fetuses, the, um, the ability to produce that that same inflammatory protein. So cool. I mean, I've always, I always relate acenophils to allergic reactions uh, mm -hmm. and, and allergies. And so hearing this interesting connection with pregnancy, which is almost like a byproduct for the acenophils, yeah. but still that's really cool. And you just yeah. blew my mind. Yeah. So during pregnancy, uh, the eosinophil count just sort of um, just gradually just decreases and, and reaches a, a low towards the end of pregnancy. And then, and then just, um, Rockets, rockets, right? So, yeah. this is this. You probably you might not know this, but do pregnant women then have if they have seasonal allergies before pregnancy? Do they experience fewer symptoms of seasonal allergies during that big acenophil dip? Oh, I don't know about seasonal allergies and 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 pregnancy. Um, mm, I know that um, severity of some autoimmune conditions mm -hmm. um, decreases during pregnancy, but others others get worse. Um, but I have not looked at the, the intersection between allergies and pregnancy at all. Oh, how dare you, Amy? <laughs> you not answer the question you had no idea I was going to throw at you. <laughs> Just because you blew my mind with the eosinophils. Um, and I guess the other part of this that relates is that uh, a woman's immune system function varies throughout pregnancy. Uh, is that just from like pregnancy and then at the, the point of labor and delivery, or is it varying from trimester to trimester as well? And, and how and why? Right. So, um, I mean, you could say it varies from trimester to trimester, but I think even categorizing things into trimesters is putting continuous biological variables into, into categorical blocks. Mm. Right. And so it's just a, there's a continuous, uh, change over the course of, of pregnancy that sort of tracks um, fetal development and, um, you know, um, and growth. Um, the demands of pregnancy are, are very different, you know, in that 
when it's a, a small cluster of cells and then when you're actually in the third trimester building brain tissue um, mm. inside you. Yeah, so how and why it varies. Um, actually, I should mention um, Carmen Jouvet, who I know you mm -hmm. have also interviewed on here before. Uh, she's first author on a manuscript we just submitted um, coming out of, out of her master's work. Um, so she, uh, we're characterizing um, those immune changes across pregnancy huh. um, and then comparing those changes um, in Chimane women uh, versus uh, U.S women counterparts very cool yeah so generally the shift in pregnancy is that you have a greater reliance on the sort of innate arm of the uh immune system and so mainly an increase in the number of neutrophils and um, you actually get a decrease in the number of cytotoxic lymphocytes and those are the cells that have potential to recognize and tag the fetus for destruction so it makes sense to tamp those guys down um but I think the really fascinating thing uh, that came out of that paper is showing that um, those shifts in immune profile are in the same direction for Chimani women and U.S. women who mm -hmm. live in quite different um, disease environments um, and dealing with different things immunologically. But that um, in U.S. women, you see this sort of massive increase in the overall white blood cell count uh, that you don't see so much in Chimani women because um, their, their white blood cell counts are already high at baseline um, mm -hmm. before pregnancy. And so their pregnancy-related shift is, is relatively much smaller. Yeah. Yeah. No, very cool. Yeah. Um, so um, going back to the Chimani and the study that you did among pregnant women and looking at hemoglobin levels and hookworm, and I'm sorry for the, the tangent I took us on, but it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, what did you find? What was the big takeaway? And, and what does this mean? <laughs> All right. So um, we did find that um, the uh, elevated eosinophil count that's usually associated with hookworm infection is a little bit attenuated during pregnancy. And that um, among hookworm infected women in their first trimester of pregnancy, um, inflammation was higher and hemoglobin was lower than for hookworm infected women in other reproductive states. Um, so it looks like the effect of hookworm infection on, um, on hemoglobin loss is, is a little bit magnified during the first trimester. Mm -hmm. um, and so it might be that by the second trimester, um, well, um, during pregnancy, um, although just during normal pregnancy, um, you get what's called uh, anemia of pregnancy, where it looks like the, the hemoglobin is, is decreasing across pregnancy, but that's because the, the volume of, of plasma in the blood increases ah. quite a lot. And so it's just a dilution effect, but mm -hmm. in reality, you're upregulating the amount of uh, red blood cells that are being pumped out. And so it might be that that upregulated production can sort of compensate for hookworm-related blood loss by, by hmm. the cell trimester, especially in cases of sort of mild infection with low worm burden. Um, but that's, that's just theory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I know this was from an existing data set and I, and I don't know what might be there to look at, but is there any documentation of dietary shifts for women pregnant and who have hookworm versus those who don't? Uh, so maybe to, to dietarily compensate for that issue as well? Um, 
if you don't have to answer, that's okay. No, nothing that I know of, nothing that's been Mm -hmm. picked up on um, by the researchers in our group who've been looking at at dietary recall. Okay. Um, But yeah. Um, But that is something I I can definitely, I can, I should look into for myself. (laughs) You don't have to for my sake, but I I was just curious of like, are they trying to meet this demand in some other way and and cope with it as best they can? Yeah. Um, Quite likely, quite likely it's, um, it's, you know, um, lowering their activity levels, just Mm. compensating in sort of micro ways. Um, But Again, that's just yeah. No hypotheses <laughs> that you can test. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, so the finding is sort of that um, we had some hypotheses about why pregnant women might have more susceptibility to hookworm infection, to new infections, or might have um, greater morbidity experience from existing infections, and the results were. Um, consistent with that but the effects are small and they seem to be concentrated in that first trimester and the existing research on um, effects of pregnancy uh, effects of anemia during pregnancy are are tend to be focused on that third trimester Um, and we do know that um, severe anemia in the third trimester is associated with um, more preterm births and also um, lower uh, iron stores for the infant themselves. So they're more likely to become anemic in their first couple of months of life and that can stunt their growth and has all sorts of of downstream effects. But the implications of anemia early in pregnancy are unknown. Um, Yeah. it is, I mean, it's, it's likely to be important because um, and when you're anemic, your cells are just not getting enough oxygen. And so mm-hmm. cellular respiration um, <laughs> sort of necessary for keeping everything moving and working as it should. And um, mom is sort of respirating for two at the beginning of pregnancy, during the whole thing. Um, and so the implications for that are unknown as of yet. Um, yeah. I don't think that they can be gotten at with this data set, but I'd like to see someone else pick that up and take a look. Yeah, speaking of it, so, so it feels almost unfair to, to be asking you some of these questions because you, you <laughs> haven't been working with this for a while and it's like you're on a, dissert, a dissertation defense. I'm so sorry, I'm being a jerk. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's not what we're here to do. So, so let, let me ask you to reiterate sort of what we started off with. Um, for you, what's next? For me, what's next? Um, The whole gosh darn dissertation is next. Um, Yeah, give us a high, like, give us a preview of what that, of what the dissertation research is going to be. All right. So um, I'm sort of, I'm I'm being inspired by questions in the bioarchaeology literature and taking them to a new uh, setting uh, where we have fewer unknown unknowns and can sort of test what's really going on. Uh, a bit better. So, um, okay, Um, archaeologists are um, really into diagnosing anemia from skeletal remains, Mm. uh, which is probably uh, something that people who don't do archaeology are a little confused about, like, what? They're looking at bones. How could they be diagnosing anemia? But um, one of the common pathological findings in skeletal remains is sort of these um, porous 
uh, changes to the bones in the, of the cranium, the top of the head, and then also in the, in the eye sockets. And there's a lot of um, armchair biology back and forth by archaeologists about what causes these, what could cause these, um, what it means in terms of population health. Um, but uh, these aren't really looked at by physicians at all. There's just sort of a, a big blank in the in contemporary populations, um, except in cases of like severe genetic anemias like sickle cell and thalassemia, you see um, some cranial changes that look similar. Um, and so that was the basis for talking about anemia from the skeleton was those, those genetic anemia cases. Um, and so um, with the Chimane project, I actually have this incredible opportunity to um, look for uh, these porous changes in the cranial bones um, because uh, one major aspect of the Chimani project has been an ongoing study of Alzheimer's risk in a subsistence population to try to tease out how much um, dementia risk is built into the human machine and how much is potentially lifestyle related. And so we have all of these head CTs that exist and and when you CT the brain you sort of you catch you catch the skull along with it and so um, I have this this beautiful sample of of head CTs that I can look at um, of all older individuals um, and so I can assess um, how their current health status um, is connected to to what their what their cranial bones look like. Um, so I will be doing that uh, with their CTs. And um, also we have chest CTs to look at cardiac health. So I'm gonna be looking at um, vertebral neural canals in the, in, the, in the vertebra from those thoracic scans. Um, so that's the, the hole that the spinal cord fits through, mm -hmm. um, which uh, develops early in childhood and its size is actually set by about four years of age. And so it's, it's a good indicator of early life growth disruptions. Um, and so I'm, I'm getting to do a little bit of um, DOHAD hypothesis testing. Um, so developmental origins of health and disease, the idea that early life experiences um, impact health uh, far down the line. And those porous cranial changes that I mentioned also um, develop during childhood and then can be sort of retained into later life lines of evidence that are, are used by archaeologists um, in a living population to see how they how they operate, um, how they're associated um, with specific um, health outcomes, um, and also with um, self-related um, health and wellness and functionality um, of older individuals. And then the third chunk of the dissertation, uh, sorry if this is longer, this is more than you asked for. Um, but the third, the third aspect is actually looking at the relationship between anemia and bone turnover um, mm. in Chimani children. Mm. So we have no scans on the children and we have no plans to irradiate them. Um, so, um, yeah, no plans to irradiate their skulls. So uh, instead we have uh, blood spot cards that exist uh, from ongoing data collection and i will be looking at biomarkers in the blood mm. of bone turnover and also um, different markers of anemia beyond just hemoglobin to try to differentiate um, the 
the underlying causes of anemia and see if any particular ones are associated with increased bone turnover. I love the holistic nature mm -hmm. of your work. You're really hitting it from so many angles. Yeah. And um, it's, it's the stuff we tout is what we want to see. And yeah. so few people do it. It's great. Yeah, wow. yeah. Kudos to you. Thank you. I, I try to, um, I find a question that interests me and then I figure out what I have to do to answer it whatever that happens to be. That's and, and that's uh, coming up with the right questions, 90% of the, the yeah. struggle. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Right, so, oh, go ahead. I get really fascinated with the, the possibilities of like triangulating um, answers from existing data sets to like leverage them for all they're worth. Well, that's um, great. And the fact that it can be used in multiple sub-disciplines is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and it's, it's a good talent to have because mm -hmm. uh, uh, figuring out ways that students can answer questions using existing data sets as we started off at the beginning mm -hmm. you're talking about is hugely important. Mm -hmm. It always has been. It's underappreciated, it's underdone and developed. Um, and there's not enough of us out there, speaking personally, who know how to do it. Yeah. So good on you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when you aren't thinking about ways to tie together all of the anthropological subdisciplines, and not uh, watching The Expanse, and not, which is drawing. now on your to do list. <laughs> What sorts of other things do you do? Any fun hobbies? What are you watching, listening to, reading? Any of those fun things? Oh, gosh. Um, well, rather than the expense, um, <laughs> I've been watching American Gods. Ah. Which is so fantastic, and I cannot, um, yeah. Have, I you, cannot have you read it? Oh, yes. First first thing first, yeah. <laughs> really impressed with how, how the show is staying true to and, like, expanding on on the book. Rather than like condensing it, blowing through everything that's in the book in the first season, and then going into worse writing from there, you know. <laughs> Game of Thrones, anyone? <laughs> anyway, um, so that's that's occupying my evenings right now. When when work is done, when my brain is is off clock, um, but. Uh, Trying to start a garden right now, which I think is, is a common pastime uh, in, in COVID times. Um, we call them, they're victory, they're ventilator gardens now, not victory gardens. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. I'm a fan. As my lettuce and cabbage are sprouting right now. Super excited. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we've got chard. What's happening? We're trying to sprout. I have to go right now to the pharmacy to get. Um, treatment for the poison ivy that my ventilator garden inflicted on me. It's not a good choice of garden position. Well, it wasn't <laughs> Location. a choice. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Uh, so, so how can folks find out more about uh, you if you want to be found out about? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I'm strangely easy to Google, despite my name. Um, I, I have been told. Um, uh, that if you Google Amy Anderson anthropology, I'm the first hit, which tickles me. Nice. Um, yeah, which I, I found out because um, someone Googled me to ask me out on a date once. Um, yeah. Has <laughs> 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 this been since the lockdown? No. no. Well, I've heard a lot of stories of people's exes contacting them, like, in lockdown. Weird stuff's going happen. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> you can actually meet up um but not a good time to high fidelity someone 
<laughs> anyway, so you're easy to Google. Are you on any social media platforms that you're yes, willing to I share am. with us? Um, I'm on Twitter um, at Skeleton Reader. <laughs> nice. And I do actually have a personal website, uh, which is amyandersonskeletonreader.com. <laughs> Perfect. We'll include it in the show notes. 